Today we are back in the book of Genesis as we continue our series in the life of Abraham. We're going to be in Genesis 13 today. I'm going to have the verses up on the screen, but I always encourage you to pull out a Bible, read them yourselves. I won't have any extra verses. I always like to give you extra verses, uh, and I know people usually like to write those down, so get out your pen and paper. I had to make a, a surprise trip to Seattle back this week to help my dad with a procedure, so ran out of time for that, so get out that pen and paper so you can write those down and any main points uh, that you feel the Lord is pressing upon you. Now, in case you have missed the last couple of weeks, this whole series uh, on Abraham is about uh, the faith that he went through, the faith that it took to go on the journey that God sent him on, the difficult journey. And it was a very difficult journey. He had highs, he had lows, sometimes his path was straight, sometimes it was curvy. But through all of it, the steadfast promises of God stayed faithful. And God did things through his life and through his faith far beyond anything that he could ever imagined. And I believe that God wants to do the same in our lives if we are willing to have the faith that it takes to trust in him, to follow his promises, and to trust in his grace and his restoration when we fail, like we saw last week. That he wants to do in this church and in your life more than you can expect or imagine. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So we're going to start today as I'm going to read through passage third, uh, the whole entire chapter 13, and then we're going to see what God uh, can bring out to touch our lives today. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And, the, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot went with Abram, and also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. 
Verse 17, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of the Mamre, which are at the Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. So last week, we looked at the dangers that come about when we respond to trials in our lives with fear instead of faith. We watched Abram travel to Egypt, and he was worried that the Egyptians would kill him because he married a total hottie. They thought, man, once Pharaoh sees her, they're going to kill me, and he's going to take her as his wife. So rather than trusting God and his promises, Abram schemed, and he lied. And he said, he said, this is just my sister, not my wife. So Pharaoh went to take Sarai as his wife. Thankfully, God intervened, and he saved him and his wife from this situation by sending plagues and disease on the house of Pharaoh. Then somehow Pharaoh put two and two together, and he got so angry with Abram. He's like, man, why did you not tell me that this was your wife? Get out of Egypt. Like, Get out of here before God does something else to me. So Abram leaves. Now, where does he go? He comes back to where he started, where his promises started, where his journey started. And he starts again in these first few verses of 13 by worshiping the Lord. And we're not focused on this today, but it's a great reminder, by the grace of God, we can always come back. We can always come back to the Lord. Amen, church? So he comes back, back to where the promises were established, back from the land he probably should have never left in the first place. And he has his eyes on the Lord. And then problems hit. Right? We talked about this last week. Because we're following God doesn't mean everything's smooth sailing. So there's a big problem that presents itself. It says in verse 5 and 6 that Lot and Abram had so much stuff that they could not dwell together. All their animals were, were trying to eat the same land, all the same grass. The herdsmen were like battling it out. The Perizzites, the Canaanites lived in the land, so there just wasn't much greenery to go around. Now, you remember we talked about last week that God will sometimes, maybe often, allow you to take the consequences of your sin with you, even if he saves you from it. This is one of the, we see one of the first examples of many to come of Abram's uh, choice to lie in the last chapter. Because when he gave his wife, what she called his sister, to Pharaoh, Pharaoh as a dowry gave him all kinds of servants and animals and everything. And Pharaoh let him keep it, even after he found out it was a lie. And so because of every, partly because of everything that he gained, him and Lot, they got too much stuff, right? That the land can no longer sustain them. You see, when, when nomadic people got wealthy, their bank accounts didn't get bigger. You know, their crypto accounts didn't get bigger. They massed more stuff, right? They got more livestock, which is a very inconvenient way to get rich because if you have more livestock, then you need more people to watch them and you have to give them more food and all of this stuff. 
You had to find bigger land to have them feed on and so on. And that's the problem that had developed. They had too much for the land. And it was causing a problem. And I think out of this problem and the way that Abram responds are some lessons for you and I on how to deal with strife in our relationships. Because relationships and strife, they go hand in hand with each other. Because every one of us is a sinner, because we all have weaknesses in our lives, disagreements and problems are going to rise. Especially the closer that you get to somebody. If that was true, I would never do any, if it was not true, I would never do any marriage or family counseling. Right? The closer you get to people, the more problems are going to arise. The more strife there's going to be. Problems come really easy in relationships. I mean, a problem can start as simple as a, a text that you sent to somebody and they misunderstood. Solutions, on the other hand, <laughs> seem to come much harder. You ever notice that? How much easier problems come? And so today what I'm hoping is that we're going to see, like I said, in Abram's response, the Lord's going to spark in us some new ways to look at the relationships we have right now that are struggling or the relationships that we have that have been completely severed because of problems and that they're going to prepare us for when new problems arrive because new problems in your relationships are probably waiting for you right when you get home. Amen. So Lord, let us see and hear what we need to see and hear today. In Jesus' name. So the first thing that I like is Abram takes great, he takes the initiative, if you notice this. Abram said to Lot, he goes up to Lot. As the leader of the family, he, hits, he deals with the situation straight on. There's no signs that he is a passive aggressive, Right? There's no signs he called up other herdsmen and gossiped about Lot, made passive-aggressive posts about Facebook he'd hoped Lot would see, right? He just goes and talks to him. He doesn't avoid the problem like many of us like to do. He goes to Lot and he says, look, we need to figure this out. It makes me think of Matthew uh, chapter five. It says, blessed Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now notice it says peacemaker, because we as Christians, we get this confused sometimes. There is a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. And we like to sit on the peacekeeper part and not the peacemaker part. See, a peacekeeper won't confront problems sometimes, They'll avoid situations because they want to keep the peace. How many people know that never works? The problems are still there. And, I, and it makes me think of churches. We're talking about families today primarily here in this situation, but the church is supposed to be a family. And I think about how many people I've talked to who bring me a problem that they're having with somebody else and they'll say, okay, I don't know what to do. And I'll, and I'll tell them, hey, I'll give them my advice anyway. And yet they'll never do anything about it. And I'll remind them and I'll check up on them. And yet they'll never go 
address the situation because they want to keep the peace. Even in my own life, I'm tempted when situations come up to be like, you know, maybe this isn't that big of a deal, right? Because addressing issues are hard. They're draining. They're taxing. Sometimes they're downright frustrating. Sometimes you walk away from a, a, a situation way more angry than you started. You ever been there? And so it's easier just to keep the peace. And yet, problems only get worse when we do that. See, a peacemaker seeks out peace where there isn't any. They take effort to go and to create peace where there isn't any, to do their part. They initiate. Reminds me of Romans 12 that says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Matthew 5, it says, says, Jesus says, if you're If you are offering your gift at the altar, he's talking to Jews when they did Old Testament offerings, and he says, there you remember that your brother has something against you? He says, leave your gift there before the altar and leave. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There is this theme throughout scripture that when we're at strife, when we have problems with somebody, a Christian should be the first one to go and initiate to say, hey, there's something going on here. And I was thinking this morning, I was writing this, I was like, man, God, are there any relationships in my life right now where there's strife, where there's tension, where there's, mm, and, and, and yet I haven't done anything. I haven't initiated nothing. I'm just sitting back waiting for it to magically heal itself. And listen, sometimes, now they were both aware of the strife here, I would imagine, but sometimes that strife is just in us. We're upset at somebody. They did something. And so we have "Mm," against them, whatever that just anger is. They don't even know it. Maybe they should know it. That's another sermon, right? But we don't go and say, hey, you said this or you did this and I could be totally off base, but I kind of felt like this. We, and we just leave that there. We don't do that. And yet it creates division in that relationship. And people sometimes are left wondering like, geez, what is going on? Why has this person changed in the way that they're, they're treating me? Without doubt, without question, if you sit here today and your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're called to be a peacemaker. You're called to go to somebody where there is strife with hopes of making peace with them. You need to take that initiative. Now, I also want to take special notice of the reason that he gives Lot for wanting to reconcile this problem. Now, we have lots of Bible verses that tell us this. Like, we have lots. We just read a couple. Now, he didn't have those verses back then. But I want you to take special notice because I I feel like this is something that's been lost. In verse 8, Abram says to Lot, Look, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Abram says, Look, there shouldn't be any issues between us because we're family. I love this. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that our relationship, when he's saying to Lot, our connection should be the reason that we work through this. 
And I feel like sometimes this has been lost. The idea that the, the connection or, or the bond that two people share, the relationship that two people share, that that should be the driving force in healing whatever the disagreement is. But I feel like too often we're tempted to do the, office, uh, the, the opposite. Rather than allowing the, qual- the, the quality of our relationship, uh, the, the connection that we have to be the driving force on, on healing the disagreement, we allow the disagreement to be the driving force on what the quality of the relationship is. Like there should be no strife between a husband and a wife. Okay, obviously there should be strife between a husband and a wife, right? That's literally impossible. Not to, like anytime I talk to a couple and they're like, we never fight. I'm like, no, you just never talk about your problems and you've learned to live with them, right? There's strife in every marriage relationship. Now, when you read the Bible and you read that a marriage relationship should be a mirror image of, of our relationship to Christ, then you realize there should be no strife in a marriage that, that affects the quality of that relationship. A husband and wife should say, look, you're my wife, you're my husband, we, we got to work on this. And yet I see divorce. And yet I, or I see couples who live together in contention. They live as roommates because they don't deal with the issues or they just, it's like a cold war brewing. Or there's intimacy, parts of their relationship that is evaporated because they haven't dealt with that stuff. I, I, you know, I, I think in you reading scripture, there shouldn't be any strife between parents and children. And yet I see parents and children who stop talking to each other. Sisters and brothers who stop talking to each other. Family members who stop talking to each other. Or even think of our, our church family. There's lots of strife in churches. And we should have this frame of mind that says, if I have a, an issue with somebody else or they have an issue with me, man, we're part of the same church family. We got to work this out. It's too important. But no, but what do we do nowadays? We say, oh, I have strife with my church family, so I'm going to go find a new church family until I have strife with them. And it goes on and on and on. I, how many times have I said this? The greatest threat to the gospel is division. It ain't the devil, it's division. It's disunity in the church where churches will not stay together and work and grow together. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this. Our own sin, our own pride, our own insecurities, sometimes our own apathy and laziness and dealing with things. And sometimes it's just because we live in America and we're like, I feel like constantly taught that we are all individuals. It is, it's about us. We're your importance as an individual used to be in the community that you are a part of. Now it's all about you. We're all about us. Everyone is their own person. And, and, and that is what's important. You be true to you, whatever you want to be. And, and, and it's not, your importance is not tied as much to the, the family or the community that you're a part of. And so we have all these generations that are coming up now focused on them. And also generations that have grown up in broken homes because families have fallen apart because of the biblical principles that they don't apply in their lives. It 
So it's so much easier for us to leave whatever relationships we have when there's strife. Even though we've been designed for relationship. You see in the beginning of time, the Trinity, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Christ the Son, dwelling together in relationship. We are also created for relationship. We, God created us to have families, to have church families. That is where we grow and where we thrive. I mean, think about it. How much different would our world look right now if everyone valued relationships more than their disagreements, more than the strife, more than being right? Divorce would be gone. Church splits would be gone. Family estrangement, gone. Like that just, I, can't, I, even, I, was, I was thinking about this, I even have trouble imagining it because of how broken our world is when it comes to relationships. Now obviously we can't fix the world, but what we can do in our own lives is say, God, are there, are there any relationships that I have where I'm not, I'm not placing enough value on it? I'm placing value on the strife I'm playing value on the disagreement rather than the relationship that God has put me in, allowed me to be in. I pray we honestly want to seek and ask God that question. You with me, church? I shouldn't say we want to, we're willing to, because I don't even want to, because then it means I have to go have really odd conversations just to be transparent. But we're willing to because of how much is at stake. So I love that he initiated, Abram did. I love that his focus was on the relationship. I also, I want to I point out how he went about solving this dispute. Verse nine, he says, look, Lot, is the whole land but not before you? I want you to separate yourself from me. You've got too much stuff. You take whatever you want, I'll take the other. You take the left, I'll go right. You want to go right, I'll go left, whatever. To understand the impact of what Abram's doing here, you have to understand the culture. Uh, Abram and, and Lot, they lived in a, an absolute patriarchal society. It means seniority and age were everything. Abram was the head of the clan. He was uncle. Lot was just the nephew. And so he had the right to say, look, Lot, this isn't working out. I'm sorry for this. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to take the Jordan Valley and the, all the lusciousness right? The Garden of Eden-like state. And I'm going to send you off into the dry, dusty dust bowl. Good luck to you. God bless you. He would have had every right to do that, would not have been a sin. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't take what is rightly owed to him. Instead, he takes this much more humble approach. And I find this so inspiring because I think in our nature, when there's a dispute between us and somebody else, our default nature is to say, hey, our relationship will be made whole when you give me what I deserve. When they do what you want, when they say what you want, when they give you what they want, when they make the sacrifice, when they humble themselves, then you're like, okay, now we can restore relationship. I mean, how many times have we withdrew from somebody because we believe that they owed us something? Sometimes we would drop someone just because they owe us an apology. Until I get that, I'm growing cold towards them. I'm distancing myself from them. We start punishing them. 
breaking relationship with them. And I pray God's opening our eyes, even mine, if we're doing this in our lives. And yet Abram, he goes the opposite route. He says, Lot, I'm going to sacrifice for you. It reminds me of what we read in Philippians 2. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. That's what Jesus did. To save relationship, which was broken because of sin, he sacrificed himself. This is what Abraham's doing here. He said, look, to, to save relationship with Lot, to heal the strife, he goes, I'm going to sacrifice. This, once again, is why becoming a Christian is the hardest thing to do, I am convinced, hands down. Because it asks you to do things. No, it commands you to do things that go against your nature. I believe this is what God calls us to do as mature Christians of, the word, of his word, is to sacrifice to save relationship. And listen, I know you're probably you're sitting there and there's a bazillion, bazillion different, you know, what ifs, and, but this happened, and all of this, and I can't address them all here in a message. But your heart should be, and your constant heart check should be, and as you go before the Lord should be like, man, God, is, is my desire to initiate, is, is my desire to sacrifice, to heal this relationship so that you may be glorified? That should be the heart we long and pray and strive for. And it's hard to do. Can I get an amen? Mm-hmm. That's right, buddy. It is hard to do. There, and let me tell you, there is only one way you can become this kind of person. This is the only way you can do it. There's only one way that you can be willing to sacrifice, especially when the other person disagrees with you or it doesn't admit you're right because you know you're right, right? Okay, there's only one way. You have to be someone who trusts in the Lord. You have to be someone whose foundation that you stand on are the promises of God. Jeremiah 17, one of my favorite verses says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is, is the Lord. He is like a tree planted near water that sends its roots out by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves always remain green and is not anxious in the time of drought for it never ceases to produce fruit. And what does Jesus, what does Jesus tie fruit to when he's teaching us in the gospel? He's, he's teaching it to good works. What are good works? They're obedient, obedient to the Lord and doing what he's called us to do. Abram is displaying an act of trust here. Because listen, right now he has three options, as I see it. One, he can demand the land. Lot, sorry, buddy, I'm taking the green stuff. Good luck. And maybe, I don't know, it doesn't say so, you, he loses a relationship with Lot. Okay? That's what we'll go on to say Lot's not known for making the greatest choices. Now, he and Lot could move to a new land. Hey, let's go to a place where the Canaanites are or not, the Perizzites are not. 
We will go over here, find this lush land together. But then what has he done? He has moved away from the land that God has called him to be in. Or he can stay in the land and then risk his riches, his livestock, his people by saying, Lot, you choose whatever you want. I'll take, what else. I'll take whatever's left. And what does Abram do? He says, I'm going to give up the better land. I don't, I'm not going to sacrifice relationship. I'm not going to sacrifice obedience to God by leaving the land he told me to be in. I'm just, Lot, you do what you want. You take what you want. The only way you can do this is if you trust God. He is essentially saying, like, look, Lot, take whatever you want because I know God's going to take care of me. How many of us would do that? I am not sure I would. Like, I would probably be like, Lot, I love to give you the green land, but, you know, uh, as a provider, I have to take care of my animals and my servants and my family and provide for them. It's not about me. It's about them. I feel like that's what I would be tempted to do. But Abram's like, no, man, Lot, go ahead. I trust my life and my family to the Lord. Man, and I love what he is teaching his family in this moment, even though his wife was probably like, what? His kids were like, what? Herdsmen were like, are you nuts? I love what he's teaching them, man. It, oh, man, there's so many lessons here about what we can teach people with our actions. This is an amazing act of faith, though. And most of us can never understand this because it's like our livelihoods are not in livestock. Well, maybe some of you that I don't know, but most of us probably not. I think the closest thing would be like, you know, maybe we have a job with a, a close friend of ours and you know, our supervisor comes and say, okay, look, uh, good news, bad news. Good news is we're going to provide one promotion and, uh, and that's it. And one of you, uh, in, one, in one of your positions are going away. Okay, so one position remains, there's one promotion, and you're both like, oh man, we'd love to go to this promotion. There's like a $50,000 pay bump and like a $30,000 bonus at the end of the year, right? And so you're, you know, and you think about all the ways this could supply for your family and all of this stuff, da da da. And this strife comes between you and this lifelong friend. And then you say, you know what, buddy? I'll tell you what, if you want the job, you take it. I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna stay here. And if you don't want it, then I'll take it. I would not do that. I'm just telling you right now, I am not godly enough to do that. But for Abraham, his future was in God's hands. This is the only way you can act like this. This is the only way that you can put someone else above you. The only way you can do it. Because when your eyes are on God, then you know he'll provide for you no matter what, right? But when your eyes are on yourself, like when you're trusting in him, but when you trust in yourself, your eyes on yourself, you cannot do this. Why? Because you're the only one who can provide for you. You're not looking to God. I got to make it happen. I got to bring home the bacon. I got to provide for my needs. Pastor Tim Keller, he calls it the if-then principle. That whatever if statement we make in situations then results in our actions. So if I can trust in God... And if I trust in his promises, then I can let things go. And I even think of this outside of financially. I mean, you know, and as a pastor and, and, and counseling lots of marriages, I mean, how many spaces, spouses will just shut off the other spouse? Maybe they, maybe they don't divorce them, but they shut themselves down to their spouse. And then the reason, like, if, if they don't give me what I need, I'm not giving them what they need. 
They'll either say this out loud or they'll think it subconsciously and you see it in their actions. Rather than saying, look, they're not giving me what I think I need, but my trust is in the Lord. And, and he is gonna sustain me. He's my ultimate spouse. That sounds weird to you. Go back and listen to our sermon on Revelation 19 a few weeks ago. He sustains me. He's my spouse. He gives me what I need. So I'm going to treat my spouse the way the word of God tells me to, regardless of how they are treating me. I will trust in the Lord for what I need. You see, when you become a Christian, your foundation changes. What you need or think you need changes. I got to tell you, that's a whole other sermon. I need. It's one of the sloppiest phrases in American culture. I need. I need, I need, I need. There's very few things that we need. Most of the things we just want. I trust in God to give me what I need. That's my foundation. So I can let things go. I can afford to be generous with my forgiveness, with my finances, with every part of my life because I believe what God says when he says that he will supply all my needs. Matthew 6. Or that he'll work all things out for good, even the strife, Romans 8 that he'll comfort me in my trials, 2 Corinthians 1. And then no matter what happens, I have an eternal life waiting for me, John chapter 4. That's how you get to a place where you can be that generous, where you can initiate with others, where you can sacrifice for the sake of relationship because you trust in him. When you don't do those things, it's simple as day. You don't trust in God. Not in that moment. Now, if you sit here tonight and you're like, how do I get to this place? Because I want to trust in God, but I don't know how. You just got to do what Abram did and you got to do it often. You, it happened right here in the very beginning when he came back from Egypt. I already kind of mentioned it in the grace of God. Is he came back to a place where he made an altar to worship God originally when the original promise came and it says he called upon the name of the Lord. Abram, in that moment, refocused his life on God. And I just wonder, Scripture doesn't say it, but I'm putting two to two together here, is I wonder if the way that he responded had to do with this moment where he was putting his eyes back on God. Like, if he didn't come back to Bethel and I and worship on the Lord, I wonder if he would have responded this way that he did. I'm not sure that he would have, because we've seen him last week make a mistake in how he acted out of fear. And, oh, my Lord, we're going to see him do it again. This guy's a yo-yo of faith. That, I should have made the, the, the image from my series, a yo-yo, right? He calls on the name of the Lord. He puts his eyes about God. He receives God's grace that his promises, even though he just walked in fear, are still there. God's promises, they weren't contingent on Abraham. He goes, this is what I'm gonna do. When you trust in God's promises and when you come back to a place and worship him, when you are seeking him on your knees in prayer, when you dust off the Bible, you open it up daily and you start reading it, like in 1 John or John or wherever you start. And then when you come to church on Sunday and you worship and you sing and you listen to a preacher like me, what you're doing is you're coming back to the Lord. You're putting his, your eyes on him. And as often as you put your eyes on him, you will have the ability to live like this. The problem is, is we think that we underestimate the power of sin in our nature. 
we underestimate it. If we really understood the gravity of our sin, we wouldn't skip praying. We wouldn't skip reading our Bible. We wouldn't skip being in church because we knew how desperately we would need it. It is only when we realize the depth of our depravity that we say, man, God, like we sang earlier, I need you. I need you. And so we won't pass up opportunities to put our eyes back on him. And so that's my prayer. My prayer is wherever in your life your eyes are not on him and they are not on, and they're on him through prayer, they're on him through his word, they're on him through being in a community of other believers, they're on him as you serve him, that the Lord will convict you of that. You'll see it now and you'll repent of it. You'll make a change in your life and say, Lord, I want to be like Abram. I want to come back. I want to come back by your grace. I want to worship you on my eyes on you. And then as you do that, and these opportunities for strife come up, oh, and will they come up, right? They come up all the time. You will be a person who trusts in the Lord. And that trust will be shown through your obedience, through your sacrifice, and your love for others. That through you, the sacrificial love of Christ would be shown. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to have said of you by someone else? That you showed them Loves Christ's sacrificial love, that they understood who Christ was and what he did through your actions. Oh Lord, let that be said of us.